If you have your Bibles, if you will join me in John chapter 6 as we continue to walk through uh, this gift of a gospel that God has given us. And, uh, and I love that uh, just so happens that we're walking through this text in light of uh, Senior Recognition Sunday. I, I just think there's so much application for, uh, for a graduate. I think there's application for uh, any believer at any age, whether... Uh, you are a, a 10-year-old growing in your faith or whether you are a 99-year-old growing in your faith. I believe that God desires to, to speak to our hearts in a, in a powerful way through his word. And the, the theme of this morning is embracing the overwhelming. Embracing the overwhelming. Now, in honor of school wrapping up and in honor of our teachers and our students, um, I thought we would just take one more test, right? It's, it's been state testing in, in our home, and, and I know many students and teachers have been walking through that. And so I want to take a three-question test this morning, uh, but it is, it, you get an automatic A, okay? So nobody's grading this, and you pass. It's an A. Uh, and it's not, it's not an open book test, but it is an open heart test. And this, this test, as you reflect and as we reflect and think about how we would answer this three question test it has incredible implications on how we live our lives so the question number one is this all right and I want you to store these answers in your heart in your mind maybe write them down if you get an opportunity to question number one is this is what do you really love doing what do you really love doing and like sleeping and eating Cheetos are not allowed to be on a, an answer for that. It's like, what, what act, let's say activity, for, for lack of a better word. What do you really love doing? What are you fulfilled in doing? Second question is this, whom do you love serving? Who do you love serving? Um, for some, there's a passion for the youngest hearts, toddlers, uh, into kiddo age and into student age and into young adult age and into uh, median adult age and senior adult age. Like typically our hearts are drawn to even an age group of people that we just love serving. And I want you to think about what your answer to that question might be. And the last question is this, what cause would you love to help conquer? What cause would you love to help conquer? And I want you to, to not just glaze over those thoughts that come in your mind, because it could be, and I believe with conviction that, that it is true, is that God desires to take what you just answered in those questions, reveals your emotional heartbeat that God has placed in your life, and that God desires to use your life in a powerful way even in a world that is filled with overwhelming need. Now, we, have, we are walking through 15 verses, and it is a very, for those who have maybe grown up in church, or uh, it is one of those stories, you've prob this might be the 2,000th time you have heard this story. It might be the first time you've heard this story. But this story, this actual historical event that took place that we're going to walk through, um, this, this, this event is detailed in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all write about this miracle that took place. And it's what's known as the feeding of the 5,000. 
And I just pray that God would take what might be for some a familiar story and stir our hearts in a powerful way to live for his glory and to live for his mission. Here's the main idea of the, of the text this morning, and that is that God desires to use our faithfulness to bring him glory in what may seem to be an impossible situation. I want to read that one more time. God desires to use our faithfulness to bring him glory in what may seem to be an impossible situation. So if you've got your Bibles, John 6, let's jump into verse 1. And the Bible says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So I want to take a quick pause there and just kind of contextually see where we're at. The, the verse one begins with after this. If you were to look at John chapter five, the previous chapter, uh, that detailed a, an event where Christ on a feast, we don't know which one, but on a feast, went in Jerusalem. He went to a place called the Pool of Bethesda. He saw a man and with great compassion, he brought complete, total, instant healing to a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years of his life. And it just so happened that he healed him on a Sabbath, which sent the religious leaders into a frenzy and a panic because you can't work on Sabbath. And he had picked up his mat to walk and, and they are rebuking him for carrying his mat on Sabbath after he had just been healed for 40, almost 40 years. And so that whole, that whole grace and truth conversation between Jesus and this religion, these religious leaders, he was graciously revealing who he was to them. To which as we open the word and we walk through the word, Jesus reveals himself to us through his word. And so when we go into John chapter six, it says after this, so we're literally probably as far as a year away from what happened in John chapter five. And so a time has passed and the other gospel writers, they actually help us fill in the blanks a little bit as to what was happening. But needless to say, the word on Christ is out. His fame is far and wide and everybody wants some of Jesus. So this crowd is big. This crowd is large. And, and, and they, are, they are all about what Jesus' hands can do for them. They want more miracles. Who doesn't have something broken that they wouldn't want Jesus to fix in their lives? And so they are all about the miracle. They're all about what his hands can do. And so they're, they're following him. But what's interesting is this, is we are literally seeing a scene where there are thousands upon thousands of people that are following after Jesus, not because of who he is, but because of what his hands can do. And by the end of chapter six, which is what we're going to walk through over the next couple of weeks, the Bible says this over in verse 66, it says, many turned their backs and went away. And so there was this large crowd and Jesus is going to walk through and give some hard teaching. And what's going to happen is this large crowd is going to begin to dwindle, but their hearts are far from him. He knows it but he still meets them with compassion where they are and he's going to bless them with an incredible miracle. And so their hearts are far from them. They're in it for the exciting time, but when the hard times come, they're out as we'll see. And maybe we've seen, maybe you've experienced that maybe in your life, maybe you've seen others walk through that where they have 
uh, an encounter with, with Christ of, of some sort. And man, they are fired up. Like they are fired up about Jesus. They're committed to whatever's going on in the life of a church, like all in, all in, all in. But then something happens along the way. And that passion that was once there is almost like it doesn't even exist anymore. It's like, what, what happens? What happens? Jesus gives a parable uh, called the parable of the soils. And over in Matthew 13, perhaps this, uh, this illustration might describe what's happening in the hearts of the large crowd that by the end of chapter six, they're no longer following him. The Bible says this. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So Jesus, knowing their hearts are far from him, knowing the multitudes are pressing in, knowing there is an overwhelming need that is happening in their life right now. He, he meets them where they are and he is going to bless them with an incredible miracle. And we're all going to get to have a front row seat to it this morning. The Bible says in verse three, Jesus went up on the mountainside and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand and lifting up his eyes then and seeing that large crowd was coming toward him. So this is why there was such a large crowd. You might wonder why in the world is there so many thousands and thousands of people on a Galilean mountainside? Like even kind of a remote type setting. It's because all the Hebrew pilgrims from all over the region, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way to the mountain city. They're on their way to celebrate the great feast of their people. And so as they are making the journey, there's literally the highways and byways and roadways are full of people. And so there's this great multitude of people. This multitude's coming in. And I mentioned that this gospel account is in all four of the gospels. And so over in Mark's gospel, the disciples tell Jesus this, it's coming towards the end of the day. Um, they're, they're hungry and the disciples say over in Mark chapter six, verse 35, or excuse me, verse 36, the disciples get together and they go to Jesus and they say, send these people away, send them away. Like, just like we're, our, our hands are tied here. There's nothing more we can do. Just, just tell them to go home. And then in Mark chapter six, verse 37, Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. So there's thousands and thousands of people. And now we're back in John's gospel in John chapter six, verse five. And Jesus with great intentionality speaks to Philip, one of the disciples. And he said to Philip, where are you, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. All right. So we just got done with state testing. This is faith testing. This is a faith test. And Jesus specifically asked Philip. And Philip is, he's the administrator of the disciples. And God bless the administrators, right? They're like, their minds are like calculators. I mean, everything is logistics and they know how everything works and fits together. And so Philip is the, 
he, Philip is the administrator of the disciples. And so his mind, you, can, you ever look at somebody in the eyes and you can almost see their brains cranking like as you're talking to them. That's kind of the look I see with Philip is, as, as Jesus looks to him and is like, um, where are we, where are we going to feed all these people? And, and I picture his like the human calculator is just like, da, 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 like just going, going wild. But Jesus knows what he's going to do. And it says he did this to test him. Why do we test? Why do, why do, why do we take tests? Tests typically are used as a tool to reveal what, what you know about something. And so Jesus is giving them a faith test and the faith test is to reveal what they know about him. Think about it. He's been with them. He's, they've, they've seen the miracles at Cana. They saw the miracle of the royal official son. They saw the, the, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus is testing them to see, do they really know who, who's with them? Because all Philip can think about is like the, the calculations and how it's just not quite adding up. Like Philip's ingenuity isn't going to get them there on this one. Philip's wisdom isn't going to get them there on this one. Philip's skill set isn't going to get them through on this one. Like there's limitations to what God wants to do in this situation. And all Philip can think about is what he can do and not who's with him. And so we see in the text that there are about 5,000 men. And perhaps you've, you've, you've dug into that a bit. If there are 5,000 men and they're on their way to the, to the mountain city to celebrate Passover, well, their, their spouses are with them. Their children are with them. And so now we're not just talking about 5,000 men. Some scholars say there's as many as 15 to 20,000 people that are now gathered and pressing in on Jesus on this mountainside. And that's just hard for me to get my head around what that might've looked like. But I do have a picture I want to show you of the FedEx forum. And this is the Grizzlies. I'm sad they got beat the other night, but, but this is a packed house at the FedEx forum. And if you pack the house at the FedEx form, you're going to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 18,500-ish people. And so when we talk about thousands of people that are gathered on this mountainside, I'm not thinking a Grizzlies game, but, uh, but I am thinking about all of those people who are pressing in. And there is an overwhelming need. And our world is filled with overwhelming needs. When we first got started, I asked you three questions that third question, well, what was a cause that you would love to help conquer? Causes are typically connected with needs and needs that are overwhelming. I mean, I, I did a little statistical research, just curious what the numbers were. I knew they were big, but I didn't know for sure. Uh, there's somewhere today in the neighborhood of 700 million people around the world who live in extreme poverty. So living on less than $1.90 a day, this is their life every day. 700 million people that currently estimated around the world right now, there are somewhere around 40.3 million children, women, and men who are being sex trafficked across our world. That in our own country alone, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 424,000 children that are in foster care. And on any given day, there's around 120,000 who are waiting for a forever home. And so it's easy to hear these gigantic numbers and whatever that cause that might be close to your heart. And it seems completely overwhelming. Like 
what could we do? What could I do? What could we do? And an observation that is happening in this text is that overwhelming needs present an opportunity for our faith to be stretched. This is what God is doing with Philip in this conversation. He's stretching his faith. All he can see is what's physical, but he doesn't know that this is, this is Jesus trying to help him understand who he is and who is with him. And so Philip is going to have his, his faith stretched. And for us, God desires to grow our faith, new levels of trust that we trust him more today than we did yesterday. And we trust him more the day after that than we did the day before. And so in verse seven, Philip answered him after like, like doing the, the calculating numbers in his head. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So a denarii was equal to about one day's wage. If you do the math, 200 denarii, that's somewhere around the neighborhood of three quarters of a year. And so what he's saying is uh, three quarters of a year I could work and there wouldn't even be enough to, for even everybody to get just a, a little bit. But Philip forgets who is with him. He forgets who's with him. Verse eight, then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So, so now the scene shifts from Philip to Andrew. Andrew, almost always in scripture, he's known as Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> and if you're a sibling, maybe you are always known. I was always known as Jenny's little brother. That's my sister. Like I, was, I was never Jared, I was Jenny's little brother. And so maybe you can relate with that. Andrew was always Simon Peter's younger brother or the other brother. But here's what I love about Andrew. He is, he is, he is that disciple, maybe not so much in the role like Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the, the kind of the leader of the disciples. He was the one on Pentecost that was preaching to thousands boldly. And, but Andrew, Andrew is a bringer. Andrew is the one who introduced Simon Peter to Jesus. If you go back to John 1, when we first started this thing, Andrew was a follower of John the baptizer. And when John the baptizer says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he unhitched his wagon from John the Baptist and hitched it to Jesus. And when he began to follow Jesus, his, his burden was for his brother. He went to his home first. And so he went and he introduces Simon Peter to Jesus. And so here is Andrew again, Simon Peter's brother, bringing this little boy who has loaves and fish. Now, how in the world he got and knew those, that boy had loaves and fish. I don't know. Like, I don't know if the disciples were like looking for everything and found a boy with a sack and saw it. I don't know how all that happened, but all I know is he found the boy and he brought the boy to Jesus. And here is a challenge that I believe is very encouraging. And that is, and it's challenging in, that we would embrace that we don't have what it takes, but that we would resolve to be faithful for, with what we have. Right? Because don't, don't we, if there's an overwhelming need, I mean, it's easy to see those numbers about poverty, about foster adoption care, sex trafficking. I mean, there's so many causes that are there. And the numbers are, are overwhelming. And it's so easy for us to see those things that we're burdened for. And automatically we, we do what Philip does. We start calculating in our mind of why 
we can't make a difference for the glory of God. We think that we may not have the skill set that it takes. We may not think that we have the wisdom that it takes. We may not think that we've walked with Jesus long enough to have what it takes. We may not think that we have, uh, know the Bible as well we should for what it takes. Like we may feel like we're too old. We may feel like we're too young. There's like no, no lack of reasons why we think we can't make a difference for the glory of God. And so perhaps that is one of the points of the text. It's like, you're right. You don't have what it takes, but that's why I'm here. That's why I want to empower you and gift you with the grace to make a difference. Because not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something. It's been said before, everybody can do something. And so maybe it's this fact that this need of, of being overwhelmed is a good thing and not a bad thing. Because it reminds us we desperately need his grace to be able to make a kingdom impact. And in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. This is such a jump from what was happening just a few verses ago. Philip is over there crunching the numbers. 200 denarii I wouldn't even get. People, just a little something. But don't forget who is with you. And so when you take what little you think you have and you place it in the master's hands, the math isn't two plus five equals seven. The math is two plus five plus Jesus equals exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever ask or think or imagine. That's kingdom math. It's way different than the math that Philip is cranking out in his head. And it's even different from saying, well, here's a couple fish and a couple bread, but what good is that going to do? Jesus is testing them. He's testing them to know that he is God and that with man, this may be impossible. But as Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. And so with Jesus, I don't know what it looked like. I, I don't, I, and I don't want to even allude to even think that I do, but I just wonder if Jesus didn't have a little bit of a grin in his face and tell him to sit down and give me that bread and fish. And let me show you what I can do. And then in verse 13, the Bible says, So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had been eaten. So we got leftovers. <laughs> we, got left, we didn't know how anybody was going to get a little bit. Now we got leftovers. How many baskets were there? 12. How many disciples are there? 12. Just think about it. When they're walking away from this whole encounter, they're walking away with a basket of bread to sustain them for the next day. And the next day. That they have this reminder with them of God's providence and God's grace and God's care. 
And this reminder that the math might not always make sense in my head, but with God, all things really are possible. And so what is Jesus doing? What's the the teachable moment? He's teaching them who he is. He's revealing who he is to them. It's still, they still weren't quite getting it. And even after the resurrection, they still weren't quite getting it. But, but God was faithful to reveal and guide them. And there's one more truth in the scripture that, that I think culminates the whole story. And that is the truth that God receives glory through our faithfulness. God receives glory through our faithfulness. This is the purpose of the story. The star is not Andrew. The star is not Philip. The star is not the little boy. We don't, we don't even know the little boy's name. John is the only gospel writer that even mentions that there's a boy. And that's intentional, I believe, because the story was never to be about Philip and the story was never to be about Andrew and the story was never to be about this boy hoisting the boy up and trotting him around those thousands saying, look at what this boy did. And it wasn't about walk, waking up and reading the Galilean post this morning and said, boy gives his lunch and feeds thousands. Like the story was never meant to be about him. The story all along was to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. And so the story was never, ever about them. And it wasn't even about the the mom. Think about, I don't know if it was mom that packed his lunch for the day. Somebody told me the miracle was the boy didn't eat his lunch. Like there was something in his sack by the time Philip got a hold or Andrew got a hold of him. But think about it. Mom was perhaps, or dad was in there maybe prepping a couple fish and some bread, thinking this might do him for the day, not knowing it was going to be food for 15,000 people that day. But you never know. You never know what God wants to do through our, what we would say with what we, what so little we bring, what so little we bring. And I believe that's when God displays his glory most. And so as we walk away from this text, may we be encouraged that our math doesn't always, um, our, 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 our math can be pretty rigid in, in, in how we calculate. Two plus five equals seven. But with God, two plus five plus Christ equals exceedingly abundantly more. And so as we walk away from the text, let's be encouraged by a couple of things. One is that may we be grateful for what God has given us. May we be grateful for what God has given us. I know... So many are in such great need. And sometimes that may seem like there's more month than there is pay and bills and there's all these factors. But, but can, we, can we also take a moment and just be humbled and be overwhelmed at God's grace and goodness in what he has provided for us and what he's given for us? And the second thing I would say is, and this is a question for all of us, is how are you actively engaged in living for the glory of God and for the mission of God currently? Currently. Because God's invitation 
is he could have done all that by himself on that mountainside, but he chose to use his disciples. He chose to work through them to impact the masses. And so God desires to use us. And so that's why when I ask those questions on the front end, don't miss that. Because that, that reveals your unique emotional heartbeat, regardless of what age you're at. What do you love doing? Who do you love serving? What cause would you love to help conquer? One of the funnest questions in the world is to ask, if there were no boundaries and no fear, what would you want to do for God? And then lay that against the backdrop of kingdom math bringing an offering to our God, what he has gifted us in the first place with is as little as it may seem and watch God work. And here is the encouragement is these, these needs are not the end of uh, the end of themselves. Like food in a stomach like that, there's going to, they're going to be hungry again. There's always going to be needs and those needs aren't the end. The end is that in this text, the end is ultimately that through those needs, the savior of the world is revealed who can ultimately and only satisfy a soul's longing. He's the only, only way. And so perhaps, perhaps it is time to engage in the mission of God. And that can look so many different ways but perhaps God wants to take what you love to do and he wants to take the burden for that group that you desire and you love serving and that cause that is a great burden for you and to use it to make a kingdom impact that ultimately reveals the world to who he is, to who he is. And then um, the last thing is, well, to the believer, I, I would say this. I, I think this is important to, to say because I, there's been, Maybe there's been times in your life, maybe in my life, where we think that we're, we're not in a position or a place to make that impact for, for God. Like we think, well, in a few more years, then this will happen and then this. Or, or we, we think that, that there's some timeline that we need to knock a couple things off the list before we can really be used by the Lord to which... I believe we see in the text is God has given you and placed in your stewardship everything you need to change the world from where you're at right now. He's given you every resource you need. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. He's invited you into mission and God has a mission for us wherever we live, work and play, wherever that is. And so one of the whispers of the enemy is just wait, just wait, just wait. Man, they're gonna. You can't, you can't do something like that for God. Like, like there's all these little read, but but again, we see in the text. Let's bring what we have for the Lord. Embrace that we don't have what it takes, but yet trust Him still and allow God to work in mighty, mighty ways. And there's one more, one more verse uh, as we wrap up. Verse verse 15, the Bible says this: Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So people being people, right? <laughs> Look at what his hands can do. Man, this is the hour. This is the time. Uh, this is the prophet that God has sent. But you know what? This, this, this Roman rule has gotten really old. Now's the time. Let's, let's take 
Let's get a hold of Jesus and let's go and let's flip Rome on its head, on its head and let's get freed up from, from their tyranny and their rule and their reign. And let's, let's be the rulers of, of, of Judea and Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. Let's go. And so they're, they're like, I mean, I don't know if they're physically trying to get their hands on him, but Jesus is, I, I, Jesus didn't come to be a political ruler. He is the conquering king. He is coming back to rule and reign and be worshiped as king of kings and Lord of lords. That is coming. But in his mission now, in his life and ministry, he came to be the suffering servant. And so they're wanting to lay their hands on him for their purposes. And that's not how it works in God's economy. And so he withdraws. Why? Because he is on a path and that path is going to take him to a cross and where he will be suffered and he will be beaten and he will be crucified on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sin. And they will place his body in a, very, or a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he will resurrect from the dead, proving that he alone has the power to forgive our sin, to grant us peace with God and give us life and life to the full. This is why Christ has come. And he is coming to be the conquering king, but he first came to be the suffering servant. And so... For anybody who may be here who's living apart from a relationship with God, I just encourage you that you would hear God pursuing relationship with you through his word and that he is the king. And one day, those who willingly or unwillingly will all bow their knee to King Jesus. That day is coming, but Christ has come to make a way for you to have a relationship with with God and he's the only one who could. So as we pray and we're going to move into a time of, of response, I pray that that's exactly what this time is for each of our hearts. It can look a lot of different ways, but let's not miss how God has wired us, how God has burdened us, that he has designed us for mission and for his glory. And he has also extended an invitation to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved and to be in relationship with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this text. God, thank you for continuing to reveal your power and your might to your creation. God, I can't imagine the looks on the disciples' faces, the looks on that little boy's face when you took that little bit and when it's in your hands, the overwhelming doesn't quite seem as impossible as it did before. And so God, as believers, may we rally together to live lives that honor you and bless you and glorify you. And that God, that you have equipped us and uniquely called us and burdened us and gifted us to make a kingdom impact that far outlasts this little life that we have that's described as a vapor, but would bring glory and honor to you. And God, I do pray for that soul who may be trying to do everything on their own and ultimately resting on their goodness for salvation. God, there is none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
but that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God, I pray that you would find our hearts open and sensitive and tender to what you desire to do in and through our lives for your glory. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll invite you to stand with me and we'll have pastors here that would love the opportunity to pray over you if you desire to be prayed over. The altar is always open, but just really using this time as a time to, to uh, worship the King.